Recovery Elevator, episode 223. You know, I, I didn't like me and who I'd become. And so, it, again, it was, it was sick and tired of being, you know, sick and tired. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're a longtime listener, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, well, then nice job. It takes courage to listen to this podcast. One must be brave to look inside and make perhaps the biggest change they will ever make in their life. Okay, on today's podcast, we've got Alex. He's 34 years old. He's from Sandy, Utah. He's been sober for 63 days, and he talks about how alcohol was ruined for him. Before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. So right now, on the release date of this podcast, which is Monday, May 27th, I'm at a meditation retreat. Yeah, a silent meditation retreat. Yep, no kidding. I had a listener email me about a retreat taking place at beautiful Flathead Lake, about three and a half hours away from Bozeman, and I said, whoa, this looks kind of cool, right on one of my favorite lakes in the country. Meditation has been a big part of my recovery portfolio this past year. I said, yeah, I can do this. And then I read the details, the itinerary, the fine print, and it said it was a silent retreat, as in we don't talk to anyone for five days. I currently make a living talking, and yeah, I get it. I love me some quiet time. I love the Simon and Garfunkel song, The Sounds of Silence, but not for five days. Shit, no way. So I quickly closed the tab on my internet browser and said, no thanks, thank you for the invite, but uh, not for me. After all, it's Memorial Day weekend. I'm going to be on a boat chugging some Topo Chico, hanging out with some friends and my dog. So I went to bed, didn't think anything of it. However, when I woke up, eyes open, the first thought that popped into my mind was, Pablo, Paul, that's myself, we're going to the silent meditation retreat. <laughs> and I've learned to listen when the gut tells me to do something. Uh, so right now, that's where I'm at. So right about now, I'm probably at hour 18 of silence. I'm either on a cushion levitating in pure bliss or seriously rethinking my decision. Send me some love. I'll let you know in a couple episodes from now how the retreat went. But I do encourage you to explore meditation, which is basically just quieting the mind. Okay, let's get started. 
Researchers at Penn State and the University at Buffalo study the drinking habits of people who work with the public. This is an interesting study, but it makes a lot of sense. They found employees who forced themselves to smile and be happy in front of customers were more at risk for heavier drinking after work and in life in general. In a statement, Alicia Grandy, professor of psychology at Penn State, said the results suggest that employers may want to reconsider service with smile policies. According to Grandy, faking and suppressing emotions with customers was related to drinking beyond the stress of the job. She said it wasn't just feeling badly that makes them reach for a drink. Instead, the more they have to control negative emotions at work, the less they are able to control their alcohol intake after work. While previous research has shown a connection between service workers and problems with drinking, Grandy said the reasons why were not known. She hypothesized that by faking or suppressing emotions in front of customers, employees may be using a lot of self-control. Uh, the word control. We've heard that word a lot in this podcast. So later, those employees may not have a lot of self-control left to regulate how much alcohol they drink. Ah, willpower, finite and inexhaustible resource. Granny continues to say, Smiling as part of your job sounds like a really positive thing, but doing it all day can be draining. Data included information about how often the participants faked or suppressed emotions, also called surface acting, as well as how often and how much the participants drank after work. The researchers found that overall, employees who interacted with the public drank more after work than those who did not. Additionally, surface acting was also linked with drinking after work. Cool. Let's unpack this gem of a study for a moment. The opposite of addiction is connection, and if you were in a job where you're faking connection all day or surface acting, then yeah, this makes total sense. A drink will sound pretty good. I currently bank at Wells Fargo. Don't hate me. I live in a small town. And after depositing a check at Wells Fargo, it's 50-50 if I'm going to relapse or not. I'm kidding, but you get the point, and I can only imagine what it's like for the Wells Fargo employee. So let me recap every Wells Fargo interaction I've ever had. Go something like this. Hey, Paul, or Mr. Churchill, how's your Tuesday morning going? I go, good, yeah, uh, thanks for asking. Bank teller then says, do you have any fun plans for the day? Um, well, it's, it's Tuesday, so after this, I think I'll go back to work, maybe catch up on some Game of Thrones tonight, maybe a hike. And then I realize that I'm engaged in a conversation, and, you know, fake or not, I still need to reciprocate the question. So then I say, after I look at his name tag, I say, uh, how about you, Tim? How are you doing? And he goes, well, you know, it's, it's Tuesday. I'm just working and well, maybe get out fishing. And so we both just interacted in a completely fake dialogue. Consciously, we're saying, okay, cool, this is great. Unconsciously, everybody involved, even the people behind us in line, they're like, this conversation sucks and nobody wants anything to do with it. So imagine being the bank teller, having this inauthentic dialogue 50 to 100 times per day. It's no wonder there's a new bank teller every time I go in. They're all probably in treatment for alcohol addiction. Let's look at the service industry, restaurants. I thought it was because the lifestyle, the environment, and the hours, which is probably a factor, but drinking is rampant in this culture, most likely because you're having fake conversations all day. Remember the guy in office space that worked at Tchotchkes that had all that flair? Gosh, that was exhausting to watch. So people drink more when they aren't having genuine, authentic connections with other human beings. It's a fact. I've been laying down that jive since the inception of this podcast, and thank you Penn State and the University of Buffalo for doing a weird scientific study to prove this. 
And the other side of the study is the suppression of negative emotions, which also leads to more drinking. So a couple things. There is no such thing as a positive or negative emotions. They are just emotions. So what's happening here when we suppress something that we call negative is that half of all emotions are being stuffed into a jack-in-the-box, and the result, over time, inevitably will be a similar experience to dining at a jack-in-the-box restaurant. Terrible. So what I'm inviting you to explore is to avoid the suppression of any emotion. All emotions are good. Actually, I just talked myself in a corner there. <laughs> All emotions are just emotions. None are good or bad. They just are. So this can get tricky in a work environment. I get it. But there are ways to be more authentic in public situations. For example, we could say, hey, how you doing? Well, you know, I got a case of the Mondays. Sorry, I had to throw in another office space reference there. You could say, well, it's almost 5 o'clock. Or you could just be fully authentic and say, dude, it's been a rough one. And the person on the other side will say, yeah, is there anything I can do to help? Perhaps the best way to be authentic is with eye contact. I've done my best recently with any interaction with an employee, with somebody who I'm engaged with at a restaurant, gas station, etc., just to simply look somebody in the eye. So authenticity replaces positivity. That's the title of this podcast episode, and here's what I mean. So optimism isn't a bad thing at all, but we get into trouble when we ignore part of us that isn't feeling positive. Telling ourselves today is going to be a five-star day and ignoring the knot in the stomach will backfire in time. As Carl Jung says, what you resist persists. And although your mantra is today is the best day ever, there might be part of you that says, fuck that. And ignoring that emotion will cause it to build until it can no longer be ignored. So, okay, if we're fake, have false connections, suppress emotions, then we are more likely to drink. If you're listening to this podcast, if you're like how I was, you did all these things. Check, check, check. I personally worked in the service industry for a long time. I bartended, I was a waiter, I bust, I pretty much did every restaurant in the front of the house a restaurant. I even owned a bar in Spain. That was probably the best position I had in the service industry because I could be authentic in the bar. I owned it. But looking back, sure, it took a toll walking up to table after table and saying, hey guys, how's it going? What can I get you to drink? That was all fake conversation and perhaps the reason why my drinking did ramp up was because I was in that environment. Um, alcohol is being served in that establishment, but I never really thought of it. There was also a lot of false interaction that was taking place. So what do we do? Well, well this is an easy one. Here's what we do. We just say, fuck it. Let it be. All of it. The perceived air quotes, positive and negative emotions, let them be all of them because they aren't good or they aren't bad. They just are. So next time someone says, hey, Cindy, how are you? Tell them how you really are, even if you're at work. Listen to the inner voice and let that voice speak. The true you has been wanting to emerge for quite some time now, and it's time to let it speak. It's going to feel good. So children are the best teachers of how to do this. We humans, especially grown-ups, take ourselves way too seriously. We all need to lighten up, chill out, relax, and remember that nothing is under control couple more things before we hear from Alex. Registration for the Asia Adventure trip. This is a sober travel itinerary. We're going to go to Cambodia and Thailand this January 20th to January 31st. Registration opens up June 1st, Saturday. So claim your spot. Space is limited. This trip is going to be incredible. 
And before we hear from Alex, let's hear from today's sponsor, BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? As I'm finalizing my book and I'm about to launch, I'm experiencing some fear. And I was able to get some help with this from a licensed professional with BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator and join the over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. For Recovery Elevator listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. Alex, how are you? I'm doing great, Paul. How are you? Alex, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Uh, so I've been uh, sober for 63 days now since February 19th. Congratulations. And before I hit record, you mentioned that you um, you started this alcohol-free journey on January 1st, and you made it, I think, the whole month, and then had 14 days of drinking in February. So for the most part, I think we both can agree with this. You've been sober for the majority of 2019? Yep. So I think, I, I think I've think i met my goal. I think you say that your goals last 17 days or something like that. So I think I've surpassed that. So I'm, I think I've <laughs> met my goal, but I'm going to continue this. We're going to continue. Yeah. Nice job, man. Great job. And I'm excited to learn more about your journey into this alcohol-free life, Alex. But before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? But most importantly, what do you like to do for fun, Alex? Well, I'll start with I'm 34 years old. I was born and raised in Sandy, Utah, and that's where I currently live. I'm married and have a beautiful three-year-old boy named George. Uh, I work in information technology, and then also I'm a captain in the Army National Guard. Uh, what I like to do for fun. So I I like to do a lot of things, but I, what I really am passionate about is skiing and the outdoors. So pretty much uh, anything outdoors like ski, climb, camping, glamping. And then my creative side likes to play guitar and drums. Wow, good stuff. And as far as the outdoor recreational things, Sandy, Utah, uh, that's where I grew up too. And we chatted about this before I hit record. We actually went to the same elementary school. We probably overlapped a little bit bumped up, bumped into each other in the halls. Um, but for the outdoor stuff, Snowbird, Utah, Alta, Brighton, Solitude, that state of Utah with the access to Lake Powell and the desert in, in, in the southern part of the state, unbelievable. You, you can't beat it. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, it's, it's kind of ground zero for the outdoors. So I, yeah, I've been, I grew up, grew up here and I had a, thankfully I had a family that really spent a lot of time outdoors. So I got introduced uh, to that really at a young age. So I've been continuing doing that. That's kind of my that's kind of my escape. There you go. And you said you played drums and guitar. Do you got that set up inside your house? Is your, is your wife cool with that? For the most part. <laughs> but uh, my son really likes to play the drums, so I don't think she has a choice anymore. So, so yeah, I have, a, I have a jam room. 
Yeah, there you go, recruiting your family members as band members. I love it. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, and Alex, give listeners a little background about your drinking. Describe your drinking habits. When you started, did you ever attempt to moderate? When was the oh shit moment indicating that it needs to go? Did you ever have a rock bottom moment? Yeah, I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah, so I think I, I really don't have a specific date or moment where I knew I had issues with alcohol. Like looking back, I, I pretty much had attributes, I guess you would say, that were problematic right off when I, I started dabbling at the age of 21. Which, which I realized is a bit later in life compared to, to a lot of people, but uh, I live in Utah, and so I grew up in a pretty strict Mormon family, and so it was it was really frowned upon to, to do that. But so I started. So in high school, I I really dabbled with you know pills and and weed and stuff like that. But then uh, when I turned 21, graduated to to alcohol, and so I guess uh, you, you know I would probably mark the time when it started to you know, really affect me where it was adversely impacting different aspects of my life, you know, like uh, relationships, health, and, and then really my, you know, general outlook on life, uh, which was kind of like a, you know, frog in a slow boil. That's a, that's a great way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely really was. And so I've been, I, I've known about it that, that I've actually, like, it kind of hit me that, yeah, this is definitely something that, that is affecting me adversely. I've, I've, probably known that for about four years or so but i you know brushed it to the wayside and then validated it uh using different uh means you know like excuses and you know this is the culture and and other people drink that much wait wait wait, wait a second this <laughs> this is the culture in the mormon non-drinking culture that just shows you how prevalent alcohol is across the planet so <laughs> sorry i love that yeah and I, I mean i kind of i kind of had one foot in you know the the mormon door and then one foot out kind of throughout my entire life but i i also uh, joined the military you know at around the same time you know when i was 21 so really that that started off my drinking career pretty abruptly uh joining the military so the that's what i mean by you know culture because it's really prevalent that makes sense i was a little confused for a second i was kind of in two different cultures, if you will, uh, one at the complete ends, uh, both ends of the spectrum, you know, so it, it started to rear, you know, its ugly head, uh, and, and really giving more, me more anxiety when, uh, different aspects of my health started to turn, you know, I, you know, the hangovers started to affect me more. And this is, you know, this is around age 30 when, you know, this started happening. And then like I, I had like unexplained pains where my liver was located. And so I probably, you know, in my mind, I took, put two and two together. Like, yeah, I drink a, a, I drink a lot and I'm getting these pains. And, and so I, I went and saw the doctor, but they couldn't really diagnose anything. And they, I had like a unexplained shortness of breath that doctors really diagnosed as asthma. But in the back of my mind, I knew this can't be asthma, you mm -hmm. know, and then I don't have it anymore, and I still can't even explain what it was other than my body saying, probably shouldn't drink that, <laughs> you know, you jackass, but I continue to drink. And then, you know, a normal person probably would be like, hey, you know, maybe if I'm starting to see changes in my health, I probably shouldn't do that. Yeah, and, and Alex, let me ask you a question about the liver. Did you did you Google, where's my liver in my body? <laughs> No, that's not, that's funny because I, I mean, like my background, I, I, you know, I was an EMT and, you know, I was on search and rescue and I, 
I knew where the liver was, and I, I, like in the back of my head, I knew that it definitely probably was the liver, but I was like, you know, it's just probably, you know, cramps or IBS. Gotcha. Because right around age 26 at the end of Spain, I definitely Googled, where is my liver? And then looking at it on the screen, I was like, I'm fine. The pain's over here. And then I realized like you flip the image on the screen or like in a medical textbook. I was like, oh no, I'm not fine. <laughs> so yeah, I know about that. And so what was that anxiety like? You mentioned right around the age 30, the hangover's getting worse, kind of some phantom pangs in the liver, the shortness of breath, the anxiety. Talk to us about anxiety. That's a, that's a big symptom, a big sign that the body presents the host, you, that it's time to quit drinking. What was the anxiety like? The anxiety was really, it was kind of a constant thing where, you know, I would worry about things that a normal person shouldn't, you know, worry about, you know, which way should I go to work? Uh, you know, I should mow my lawn or, or something like that. And a normal person would probably worry about their health, which was obviously affecting me. And that was something I wasn't worried about. And so I kind of felt like life was all mixed up in the wrong ways. And so I used... Uh, alcohol to kind of mix it in the way that I wanted to. And, <laughs> and it just kept on going. And it, it eventually got to a point where I, you know, the anxiety and, and obviously, you know, the depression came and I, I went to see a doctor. And so my family doctor, you know, he, he was, you know, pretty cool. And it was the first time I really opened up about my depression to, to any health professional. And, and so he put me on, on meds and, uh, this was around October of 2017. Gotcha. Now, were you were you honest with your drinking with your doctor at this time? Oh no, no. Okay. Um, my my wife, who has the same family doctor, was honest to him about my drinking, but he didn't he didn't really mention it to me. And I later found out that my wife had been talking to him uh, about my drinking. So he he kind of knew it, but I think that he realized that I he wanted me to to approach him about the issue because. Even if he did say something about it, I, it you know, it, it wouldn't fix anything. I had to make that decision for myself. Sure. I, I guess that's the way I process in my head. So he, he prescribed me, you know, depression medication. And I read about the particular type of medication and it said, you know, could be harmful to the liver. And I'm like, well, I probably shouldn't do drinking and this at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And so, so actually I, I, I stopped the alcohol. Oh, didn't see that one coming. Yeah, I stopped the alcohol and it was really, really hard for me, you know, and, and, but I was like, well, I can't do that because I'll probably, you know, die of cirrhosis pretty quickly if I do both of them. And so, you know, I, I stopped it. And then I, I think I talked to, it was my sister and she, she said, well, I'm on the same medication that I drink every now and then. And so in my mind, I'm like, Oh, Okay. And so I, I think I made up my mind at that point. I didn't drink right off, but it wasn't until my wife was uh, like, hey, let's go to the liquor store and get a bottle of wine. And, and I'm like, okay. And I, I really didn't even like process it in my head because at this point in my life, I was doing, I was sober for, I guess, the wrong reasons. I was, I was sober, you know, because I couldn't drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's sober out of fear that something bad will happen and that never works because you're tapping into willpower, which is finite and exhaustible. And I'm guessing you experienced that firsthand. Yeah. And then so I, you know, I just I basically, we, you know, that started a downhill spiral and I picked up where I left off and 
and then that that lasted for roughly about a year uh, up until you know December of of last year, where I I said I'm going to do a dry January, and even though I I mean that's what I told everybody I'm going to do a dry January, but I I didn't want people to think that I had a problem, you know. So I I really hit the booze hard in December because I knew that I'm I'm not going to be drinking for January. So I I mean I I hit it hard pretty every I mean pretty much every day in in December and. Well, Alex, let's let's back it up a little bit. Before you made the decision to do the dry January, you said there was kind of like a downward spiral with the addiction process. Was there a specific moment in 2018 before you made the decision, before you're like, I'm going to get this drinking in in December? Um, was there anything before that? Or was it just like a sick and tired of being sick and tired that you knew that something had to change? Yeah, I think it was a it was sick and tired of being sick and tired, but I, I think things were just piling up in terms of, uh, it was it, it definitely our, my marriage with my, you know, my marriage was not where a healthy marriage should be. Um, and, you know, I my even my relationship with my son, I felt was kind of it, it just really wasn't there. And it wasn't I, I wasn't being who I thought I should be. Um, and, and so that was really piling up. And it was, it was kind of a dark period where, you know, I, I didn't like me and who I've become. And so again, it was, it was sick and tired of being, you know, sick and tired, uh, that, that got me to that point in, in, uh, December. Gotcha. So what was it like on January 1st? So January 1st and this, this, I mean, you know, before that, uh, when, when I was doing sobriety completely out of, uh, fear, uh, this was actually much harder. And I think I was doing it because I, I, it was kind of stage two where I'm, I had, I knew I had to let go of it and I didn't want to, cause it, it was kind of breaking up with a, a wonderful friend that, that abuses you. I don't know. It's, it was just, I couldn't really explain it other than, you know, I wanted to get away, but I was seeing it as a sacrifice rather than, you know, a way forward in my life. Alex, when we move forward without alcohol on a basis of fear, for example, liver cirrhosis will ensue if we continue to drink. I've said it on this on this podcast several times, willpower does not work. However, there's routine in that. There's comfort in knowing the why you're quitting drinking. It's out of fear. And sometimes it's fear that we might become overweight. Sometimes it's fear that we know after a binge, the anxiety will creep in and be at level 10, the depression. Fear that something bad will happen in life. Fear our, our marriages will fall apart. Fear we won't be able to make bills, the payments, mortgage, etc. And even though that doesn't work in the long run, there's still comfort in knowing the why in that. There's, there's, a, there's a clear why. And what you just mentioned, I love how you said it, Alex, there was something different in it. Something was strange with it. I don't remember exactly how you said it, but something felt different in the fact that you were quitting drinking because you, you let go of something. You said goodbye to something. And what's so hard about that is you're entering the unknown. That's when we depart from I'm quitting out of fear to I'm quitting because I want a happier life. I'm quitting because these universal signs and the body has been manifesting themselves with liver pains, the anxiety, the asthma, etc. that you're starting to listen. You're starting to surrender, which we talked about, I think, three or four episodes ago, which surrender is simply yielding to the next stage of your life. And this is scary for a lot of people. This is the whole comfort zone thing, because when you quit drinking with that mindset, you are no longer in that comfortable circle we call the comfort zone. You are outside of it. 
And so you're leaning into the unknown. You're trusting in a power greater than yourself. Had to say it, listeners, right there. That's a higher power. However you want to call it. But you're listening. You're trusting. You're listening with the ear behind the ear. And you're moving forward in a direction that you've never done before. And this is terrifying. This is absolutely terrifying. And this is, this is one of the reasons why quitting drinking in this fashion is so hard. It's not that hard to quit drinking from a short time when the doctor says, you know what? You got your liver's going to fail. You're going to die. I've heard plenty of stories where people quit drinking for, for months, a couple of years, three or four years at a time from that stance of motivation. But to quit drinking, to propel yourself forward when there is no known, there is no, well, guess what? This is going to happen. It's just, it's just based on trust. And sorry, I went for a bit on that, Alex, but I love what you said there. So talk to us about this trust. How was it early January? So about 15 minutes into, you know, dry January, uh, what I was calling it. Did you say 15 minutes in? Is that what you said? Oh, sorry. Did I say 15 minutes in? It, <laughs> it may have seemed like that, but it was 15 days in. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm thinking like you wake up at 6 a.m. on January 1st, ready to go. 6.15 a.m. You're like, oh, shit, this sucks. <laughs> okay. 15 days. Sorry. Yeah, I was taking it 15 minutes at a time. But, you know, I, I, I started, you know, a, after realizing this is, you know, going to be impossible alone, I, I started searching, you know, kind of online for, for resources and, and came across, across this, you know, podcast. And so I, I really started binging on it. And, and I really, you know, I knew what alcoholism or whatever you want to call it was, and I've seen it, but I I didn't really know what it was because, you know, I was one of those people that had the, you know, that vision in their head that, you know, this is not going to be me or ever going to be me. And so I uh, quickly found that I am one of these people and I can totally relate to, you know, the, the guests on your podcast. And, and yeah, so I, I, I was like, wow, this is, this is definitely, you know, the road I need to be on as well. And that actually didn't do it, you know, because uh, at day 32, me and my wife went on a nice date. And then I, again, I already kind of made up uh, my mind that when I finish my dry January, I'm going to, I'm going to at least drink a couple more, you know? And so I ordered a beer on our date and that started a two week bender you know, that, that took me uh, through the beginning of February. Now, during that two week bender, Alex, did you try to get back on it? Did you, or, or was it like a couple times in there you tried to stop, but couldn't? I, I almost like rationalized. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I kind of got the, what, what kind of my therapist says, the, the, the cases of the, what a case of the fuckets. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm on day zero. And so I'll start, you know, tomorrow or I'll start, start the next day. And I, you know, that two week bender was really just every day, just, you know, hammering the alcohol in my system. And then I, I don't know if it was, and, and I, I know it wasn't my wife giving me the ultimatum. I think it was just me sitting on the couch one day, you know, kind of drunk and looking at my son play and looking at my wife over there. And I just realized that this is not who I need to be right now. This is way off the path that I wanted, you know, to live, you know, I didn't really want to leave that couch when I'm on that fender and I'm a very adventurous person. So 
it was really keeping me from from what I really wanted in life. And, and listeners out there who are tracking sobriety time, this is where the hiccup can occur when we place too much time on continuous sobriety. And I podcasted about this is the case of the fuck it's like you said, because I had you know months at a time, I had two and a half years at a time. And then when, you, when you're dancing with like the three to five day range, you say, oh, fuck it, I'm throwing away two days. Oh, screw it, I've only got six days. I've only got, it's that only, I hate that word. Um, and so listeners, yeah, to so devalue the, I'm not saying throw it away, but we're going to go for quantity over quality, right? We're going for quantity here. Like you said, the majority of 2019 is is you've been alcohol-free, which is freaking awesome, Alex. It's awesome. And then you mentioned, it sounds like you had a moment of clarity sitting on the couch and said, you know what? This is not me. Talk to us after that. I think, it, I mean, this was the most important thing uh, for me. And I, I've not had the chance yet, but if I ever talk to somebody that's looking uh, to go down the path of sobriety, I... I definitely say being honest with yourself because that's at the moment I became very honest with myself and I knew there was no way around the fact that, you know, I'm an alcoholic and, and I need to stay away from it. Um, so that, that day I scheduled an appointment with my family doctor for Monday, you know, the same family doctor that I've avoided telling the truth. I remember him (laughs) uh, for so long. (laughs) And, and so I told him it was the first time I've ever told a health professional you know, in and outside of the army, you know, with the questionnaires they give you in the army, I, I would always say, yeah, I have two to three drinks a month, you know, but, we, you know, we make jokes about it, but I definitely told him how much I drank and he almost expected it. He, he just like, yeah, I already know this and this is what we need to do. I'm going to recommend you go to counseling. And, you know, I put up no fuss. I was like, yeah, whatever I need to do at this point. Because I I was completely honest with myself and completely accepted the fact that this isn't going the way that I planned on when I first you know picked up alcohol. And Alex, there's something we want to say when, when you drank at the end of January uh, on, on April 22nd. A podcast came out where I talk about relapse, and the way we need to rephrase this is it's field research. If you don't go out and drink on end of January, you don't hit that moment of clarity on your couch when you say this is not me and you and you truly get honest with yourself. So in my opinion, that, that possibly needed to happen for you to come to grips with your reality, talk, be honest with, with your doctor and take the next steps forward. I'm loving it. Keep going. Yeah. So, you know, the, the family doctor, I, I guess actually my wife told me, I told her that I was an alcoholic, but I was drunk during that time. And I cannot remember her saying that. And that came out in the therapy session later on where the therapist asked her, has he ever told you you're an alcoholic? And, and she's like, yeah, I'm like, when was that? What? <laughs> and I'm like, I must've been, I must've been blackout drunk during the time. She's like, yeah, I think you were. And so, so I think it was my, the, my wife that I told I was an alcoholic first, but then the doctor. And then I started really opening up to, to really anybody. Even there was one, you know, person that I used to, you know, hit it pretty hard with in the military. And, and I saw him at the climbing gym and, you know, got talking to him and just out of nowhere, I said, yeah, I'm sober or I'm in recovery, I think is what I said. And, and I said, I'm in recovery. And he's like, Oh, really? How's that going for you? And I, I had no idea. It was kind of like my mouth just started saying things that, and like my old self would have been like, no, don't let anybody know about this. And, and, you know, I was like, wow, I can't believe I told, you know, him that I, I was in recovery, but it felt so good 
to just like get it off my chest and, and really open up. You know, he didn't really care. It was like, okay, let's go climbing, you know? Yeah, that's the common response. People just don't care. And they're supportive. Crazy. We think the world is going to end. It doesn't. And people love us and they're supportive and they don't care. It's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it really just took off from there and, and, you know, it came to 63 days and, and I, I hope that I'm not writing the play, the, you know, the pink cloud. And I hope this is going to be normal, but I have a feeling that's not, but you know, this is kind of, you know, my new path and what I need to go down. My advice on the pink cloud, which in your email to me, you mentioned, you think you're on the pink cloud is accept it and roll with it. The pink cloud might be here forever. It might not. Mine dissipated around month 10 and it came back the following year. So there's no, there's no timeline with the pink cloud, but one, another piece of advice when the pink cloud is there, this is the time to do the work. And I don't want to call it work, but this is the time to really go internal, start developing the recovery communities, the people who don't drink as well. Um, check out yoga, check out exercise, fitness, maybe go to some meetings. This is the time when the pink cloud is when you really want to dive into recovery, not when shit hits the fan or not when you're about to hit the say fuck it button again. And now I need to do all this work because things are falling apart. So if you are in the pink cloud, you're feeling really good. Maybe dedicate some time to um, checking out meetings or really you know building an in-person recovery community and things like that. But hey, all I got to say, Alex, is you earned the pink cloud. Enjoy it. Yeah. And, and so what is a typical day for you? How do you uh, how are you doing? How are you going to get day 64? So really, it's just keeping myself busy. I'm the I'm really the type of person that if I'm not, you know, if I'm bored, I need to, to do something. And I think boredom was a, you know, a key aspect in in me drinking, because if I, you know, if I'm out doing something, I know I can't drink, you know, I, I mean, if I'm climbing, it's obviously not very safe to go climbing when you're, <laughs> when you're inebriated, even though I have done before, not, not something I would recommend, by the way. Sound advice. <laughs> <laughs> but really what, what I do, I mean, whenever I get, you know, cravings, I, I think me opening up to my wife, um, was a good thing because now I just don't leave the house unexpectedly and, you know, go out, you know, because I need to get away for and I need to do something to get my mind off of it. But I, I right now I, I go to the climbing gym and, and just kind of lose myself there. And then once I come back home, you know, it's kind of, I'm, I'm refreshed and, and I can make it through. So really keeping busy is, it, you know, keeps me going without it. Also, another thing, I, I have no idea how I picked it up. It was probably somebody on your podcast that mentioned uh, sparkling water. So if I need something fizzy in my hand, uh, or I mean, if I need a drink in my hand, I, I can just pound sparkling water all night long, and I feel like I'm, I'm doing myself good <laughs> and hydrating myself. That's, that's actually helped a lot. I don't know why. Well, it's almost like you're tricking the mind with that. I mean, th those are some easy recovery tips, but yeah, always have a drink in your hand. If you're in, a, in that environment, even if it's a non-alcoholic beverage, yeah, good stuff. And I loved how you mentioned the climbing gym. This is a great activity to try out if you're getting sober because it's meditative. You, all your attention has to be on that rock edifice or you fall. And a lot of it has to do with the breath, the grips. You're, you're in the present moment. Um, I love it. I love it. And, and Alex, what have you learned about yourself during this alcohol free journey? You know, I'm returning to, to where I want to be in life. I think, you know, when I started at a 
fairly late time in my life. And, you know, at the age of 21, I, I already knew who I wanted to be before that. And when I started drinking, I, I think I slowly, slowly creeped away from where I wanted my life to go. And now not drinking, I, I, have a, I feel like I have the freedom to, to come back to where I want to be in life. But most importantly, I, I learned how to be honest with myself which, you know, I built a habit of lying to myself for for quite some some time. And I I was I was essentially lying to myself the entire time that, hey, this is this is getting I mean, this is okay. This is what everybody does. And you don't have a problem because everybody's drinking as much or if more than you. So you're you're kind of in the clear. And so that was a lie. And so I think being honest with myself about me lying to myself was a very important step. And Alex, you rightfully accused me of something. You said I have ruined alcohol for you. <laughs> Talk to me about that. Yeah. So, I mean, listening to your podcast really kind of set the, you know, kind of built that snowball and, and you know, kind of tipped it over the top of the hill. And, and the more and more I heard about other people, the more I built the argument against myself that, yeah, this is not a good thing. And now I know all that information. And now I know all of the stories of folks saying, uh, I got this or, or, you know, I'm not, I'm not really this way and I can go back to it. And, you know, once you start, you cannot stop. And uh, I think if I, if I start again, I know what, what's going to happen. I, you know, I know it uh, in my heart to be true and I've, I've experienced it. So I, I, and I remember on day 32 when, when we, when my wife and I went on a nice date and I had that beer, I mean, I did not feel like I used to be uh, when I drank, I, I felt like this sucks. <laughs> you know, I felt, you know, this isn't even as tasty as I, it used to be, you know, and I ordered my favorite beer and it was just like, uh, yeah, I'm getting a buzz, but then I'm not really paying attention to the conversation with my wife. And I, like there's too much going on and this is not really fun. And, and I, it actually ruined my night. Um, I, I, after that, I was like, I just want to, I just want to go home you know, and go to sleep. It, it, it really just was not a, a pleasurable experience. You know, the euphoria wasn't there. So I think that was like the number one thing that we can do to other drinkers to just ruin their buzz. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah, I get that email like once a month that I've ruined alcohol for them. In fact, it probably should be a tagline, Recovery Elevator Podcast, I will ruin alcohol for you. <laughs> Subscribe and rate and review now. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it's it's like you you ruined it for me. But that's a good thing, you know. It's not like telling somebody the the end of a of a good movie. It's it's almost the exact opposite. So. Well, I can give listeners a clue of how the movie will end if they continue drinking. Um, unfortunately, that's that's not that hard to predict. But uh, but yeah, this it's it's an irreversible process trajectory. You can't unhear the things you hear on the podcast or in meetings. As soon as your body start speaking louder and you start listening with the ear behind the ear you can't unknow that stuff and it's tough to go back like you said alcohol it doesn't taste the same you can't you can't pony up at a bar and have your favorite beer and enjoy it after listening to 50 episodes of this podcast or any recovery podcast it just doesn't work i've tried it and you've said it it just doesn't work and that's the body saying okay alex okay paul you know more field research that's fine but we're moving forward on this mission in this journey without alcohol, whether you like it or not. And it eventually we come around. It just takes takes others more time than others. It took me a long time. I relapse field research, as I always say, 
was a big part of my story. And so, Alex, we have reached the rapid-fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yep, I'm ready. All right. What was your worst memory from drinking? I think, honestly, there aren't many I remember. (laughs) That's bad. But I think it was essentially all the times that I made my wife feel like shit just because I wanted to get her off my scent. I mean, there were so many arguments that we went through, and it was like, I just want to get this argument over so I can go downstairs and sleep on the couch and drink as much as I want. And so that is just a repeatable offense that I became all too familiar with. Did you have a specific oh shit moment indicating that you had to quit drinking? It was it was probably the year after my son was born. You know, I was really depressed and you know, I had suicidal thoughts and I I came to a point where I actually was, you know, planning you know, I, I knew how I wanted to do it and stuff. And that's when I was really drunk one night. I was just like, wow, I never in my life thought I was going to reach to this point. And I knew from then, you know, from then on, like, I have a problem with this, but I didn't really want to accept it at that point, which, you know, got me to, you know, later in life when I started learning more about what it's like to be an alcoholic. And with the majority of 2019 alcohol-free, which is freaking awesome, Alex, what's your favorite resource in recovery? I would say definitely this podcast. I I attribute listening to this podcast with my success. I think it was episode 175 uh, when you interviewed Chris. He, you know, I that really connected with me. He also had spent some time in the military and even spent some time in Korea. And so his story really made an impression on me. And honestly, I decided at that point, I was like, yeah, this is who I am and this is where I need to go. And so he was talking about his relationship and how it was, you know, alcohol was ruining his relationship. And I was really following the same pattern. So I, I think that was, you know, that, that was a great resource for me. And, it, and so this podcast really continues to be a good resource for me. Alex, thanks for listening. And listeners, episode 175 is Anxiety and Alcohol. And I had the pleasure of meeting Chris in Dallas. I met Chris at the Nashville Recovery Elevator Meetup. And hopefully, I'm going to go visit him and his family. There's a group of us that we're hoping to go. He's got this lake where he works at. He works at a dam. Um, And we're going to go visit him for the 4th of July at some lake in North Dakota. I'm hoping, hoping I can make that work. Awesome guy. And in regards to sobriety, Alex, what's the best advice you've ever received? To think about the positives instead of the negatives, you know, think of it as an opportunity. And that takes a lot of work. Um, The one thing that I I do, I mean, I did everything with alcohol. Every aspect of my life was surrounded by alcohol. And now in in sobriety, I get to experience those things all over again sober. And so it feels like I'm doing those things, you know, new. I mean, it's a new experience for me. So it, it is an opportunity. I wholeheartedly believe that. This whole caboodle isn't a no to alcohol. It's a yes to a better life. I love what you just said there. And a last question. What parting piece of guidance apart from don't rock climb drunk can you give to listeners who are thinking about getting sober? I would say uh, know that you're lying to yourself and start being honest about you lying to yourself. And so being honest with yourself, I think, is the best thing uh, to do, not only in alcohol, but anything and and so I, I me being honest with myself and saying, yep, I am definitely an alcoholic and I this is the life that 
um, I mean, these were the cards I've, I'm, I've been dealt. So, you know, the next step forward is being sober. And before we depart, Alex, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic If line. There, there's a lot of ones out, out there, but I think the best one for me would be You Might Be an Alcoholic if you count the half 16-ounce can of flat, warm, unfinished, 9% alcohol by volume beer from the night before as inventory for tonight's alcohol intake. Yeah, that works. Yikes. <laughs> Leave no drop behind. Yeah. Oh, there we go. I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for being part of the community. It was my pleasure speaking with you. Hey, thanks, Paul. In Cafe Ari, we have Book Club, where we actually read the book and discuss it in webinar format. And recently we discussed, which is probably one of my favorite books in the addiction space. It's called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Dr. Gabar Mate. And there's just a couple quick snippets I want to cover before we depart. He has some cool definitions of what addiction is. And he talks about the definitions the Romans used, which was addictus, who was a person who, having defaulted on a debt, was assigned to his creditor as a slave. Hence, addiction's modern sense as enslavement to a habit. Yep, that sounded about true to me. He talks about addiction as a disease, and he says it's hard to label it fully as yes or no as it is a disease or not. So addiction is confusing, and here's why. Addiction has biological, chemical, neurological, psychological, medical, emotional, social, political, economic, and spiritual underpinnings. He goes on to say, not for a moment do I wish to promote the belief that the disease model by itself explains addiction, or even that it's the key to understanding what addiction is all about. Addiction is all about many things. Again, the book is in the realm of Hungry Ghosts. I highly recommend it. Recovery Elevator, this is an inside job. It always has been and always will be. I love you guys. Uh-huh.